Thank you so much for that special music as we prepare our hearts now. Take your Bible, turn to 1 Kings 13. 1 Kings 13, we are still in the section of this story that tells us about the consequences of false worship and idol worship. This takes us all the way through chapter 16. 1 Kings 13, you know, for many people, um, to them, it's, it's the thought that counts, right? Intention, intentions matter more than deeds. It's like, well, at least you got a card, right? At least, at least, at least they thought about you, you know. Uh, it's the thought that counts. How many times have, have we told ourselves of that? And, and I think sometimes allow, people allow that thinking to even bleed over into their, uh, into their walk with God. Well, you know, it's my intentions that count. Like, as long as I, as long as I mean well, I mean, I don't have to necessarily obey God, right? I mean, as long as I, I'm, I, I have the right attitude, uh, that matters, right? And, and what, what's, the, what's the matter if I disobey? What's the worst that could possibly happen, you might think to yourself? Well, you know, in a lot of literary stories and tragic stories, they always often give us a character, a uh, portrait of someone who has a flaw, right? There, if you look at a tragedy, tragedies uh, traditionally have been stories with someone who has a, has, has a flaw that becomes their downfall. And in our, our way we talk about it, as we call it, someone's Achilles heel, right? And that, that comes from the Greek mythology of, a, of Achilles, whose, whose mother apparently, there's lots of stories about this, but one of those stories is Achilles' mother wants him to be immortal, so she dips him in the water, and she's holding onto his heel. That's the only part that doesn't get dipped in. Of course, how does he die? He gets an arrow in the heel, and it kills him, right? Um, and, and, so, and so this idea that there is a flaw, that there is this downfall, maybe a very small flaw, but it's a downfall, that's something that all human cultures have recognized, and, and, the, and the Bible paints a very clear picture for it today of this, of this very important weak spot that these people have. Like many of the stories in First and Second Kings, the purpose of this story in First Kings 13 is to give us a tragic portrait. It's a warning. It's a warning about a character flaw that will bring a sudden and severe downfall if we're not careful. And this is applying to our lives as well as to the lives of these people in this story because the weakness of, and the downfall of all these men in this story, the, the, the downfall of the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, even the prophet of God, is, is their choice to disobey the Lord. They make, make a simple choice. This is the same flaw that Eve shows in the garden when she is deceived. She, she disobeys God, and Adam disobeys God. And we never fully appreciate the disaster that disobedience brings until it's too late. And so the story today will, will act as a kind of warning for us to say, beware, beware the disaster of disobedience. And as we look at this chapter, I hope that you will take warning for your own heart as well. Father, we ask for your grace and wisdom, and Lord, I pray you give me clarity as I speak, that I would be able to articulate your truth from your word and that your, your meaning and your purposes would come through clearly, that we would recognize from this passage of Scripture our responsibility to listen to your truth, to let you have your way with us, Lord, and to not be disobedient to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see several things about disobedience this morning. If you take your Bible, like I mentioned, 1 Kings 13, the first 10 verses are going to tell us this truth, that disobedience leads you to trust powerless things, things without power. What's the first thing that we see in this book, or in this chapter, I should say, that has no power? 
Well, what we notice at the beginning is it is a religion without God. Verse 1, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam, that's the king of the northern kingdom, stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out, this is the man of God, cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense to you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. What we have here is a man of God. We don't know his name, actually. He's an he's a unnamed man of the Lord, a prophet of God. We assume he's younger. He comes from the land of Judah, which is in the southern kingdom. Remember, at this point, we have the split of the southern and northern kingdoms. Rehoboam is king of the south. Jeroboam is king of the north. And as Jeroboam has inaugurated two worship centers, one in Dan in the north, Bethel in the south, and he is here in Bethel, right across the border from Judah. And it seems like this might be the inauguration of this particular shrine. As he's worshiping, he's worshiping at this shrine, and the man of God comes up. Remember, this is counterfeit worship. As Jeroboam has set up these golden caps in Dan and Bethel as places of worshiping the Lord for the people of the northern kingdom. So there's Jeroboam standing by the altar, Jeroboam, king of the north. And, and, and as he stands by the altar, there is a perverted combination here of religious power and kingly power in this moment. He's trying to recreate the moment, perhaps, recreate the moment in 1 Kings 8 where Solomon dedicates the temple of the Lord and the, and the presence of God fills the temple and it overwhelms all those there. And so Jeroboam is there in this perverted religion. And as he's doing this, the man of God prophesies against the altar, and he gives the ultimate end of the altar. He says, there's going to be a future king named Josiah. And this king is from Judah. He's going to come, and he's going to take your pagan priests of these high places and sacrifice them on this altar, thereby desecrating this altar. And this event wouldn't happen in the not-too-distant future. We'll actually come across that event in our sermon series. But you see here that the sign, he gives a sign, because this is still future. And the prophet says there's going to be a sign that this event will happen. And the sign is that the altar in this event would split, and the ashes of the altar would pour out. It would be desecrated. It would fail its one job, which was to be an altar. It would fail and split, and the altar ashes would spill out. And, and, you know, this is a false altar in a wrong place. When you think about it, for, from Jeroboam's perspective, it was, a, it was a logical that Bethel would be a place of worship. Uh, I mean, Bethel, if you know Hebrew, means house of God. So why not put a house of God there? Bethel. Why not? Let's, let's make this. Let's make this place a place of, of worship. It was actually a tactical place, we find out also, that, that Jeroboam was placing it here because he did not want his people to go to Jerusalem, because he knew if the northern kingdom went to Jerusalem to worship God, that their hearts would be drawn to the worship of the true God. He said, I can't have that. I have to set up a more convenient, a more local place where they can come and worship and keep them away. This is, but this was a religion without God's blessing. This is a religion without God, and therefore it had no power. We see a religion without God. Secondly, we see a king without power. Look at verses 4 and 5. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. 
Then his hand, which he stretched out towards him, withered or dried up, so he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. I want you to notice this demoted king. Because there he is standing by the altar, and he stretches out his hand. Now, if, you, if you've read the Bible much, you know that a hand is a symbol of authority. We talk about the hand of God moving. We talk about the hand of a king. The hand is a symbol of authority, and the king shows his authority when he stretches out his hand, and he says, arrest that man. And I would have loved to be there. Oh, can you imagine? He says, arrest that man, and when he does this, his hand dries up. Now, a couple different ideas. One is that it shrivels up and shrivels in on itself. It's like the life leaves it. But there's an interesting description here that he could not withdraw it back to himself. That his hand is stretched out, and he's saying, arrest that man, but the hand itself, it dies. But it also is almost like it's frozen in stone because he's stuck in everything that he doesn't want people to see. It's almost like he's trying to hide the fact that his hand has been withered, but he can't pull his hand back. God says, I'm going to expose you for the weakness you are. Your hand is impossible. To, you can't do anything with a, at the hand that's all withered and, and, and wrinkled and, and dried up like that. And secondly, he says, you, you, you're going to be exposed for your weakness of power. God exposed this king without his power. The king thought that he could control the man of God. He said, arrest the man of God who's speaking truth. And the man of God stood by while the king's hand was dried up. What an amazing power is that God does it by his own word. Notice it says that the hand was withered so he could not pull it back to himself. Secondly, we see the desecrated altar. The, young, the younger prophet had given the prophecy that the altar would be broken open, that it would spill out. And sure enough, as this happens, as he commands him to be arrested, what happens? But the altar itself cracks, and the ashes spill out, and the king is exposed to being a king without power. This is a king who had rebelled against God and is shown to be without power. When you disobey God, you will find yourself trusting things that have no power. Thirdly, we see here that we have a prophet who's not submissive, to human control. Look at verse 6. The king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God. Pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. He recognizes he cannot actually do anything about his hand that has been withered. And he's begging the man of God, Would you please restore my hand? So the man of God entreated the Lord. And the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, verse 7, Come now with me, refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return the way he came to Bethel. Uh, so, so here, notice what's happening, that the, the prophet prays for the hand of the king to be restored, and the prophet is then asked by the king, the king says, hey, why don't you come to my house? Come to my house and be refreshed. It's more than just an invitation for hospitality. What the king is asking the prophet to do is become part of my entourage. I want you to be one of the king's official prophets. I mean, obviously, you've got some skills. 
you can prophesy and you can make my hand wither and make it come back again. Like, I like this guy being under my control. I want to keep my enemies closer, right? This is the idea of the king is to have him in his house. And he says, I will make, give, you how, give you a reward for what you've done. And the prophet wisely looks at him and says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm not supposed to be submissive to you. I'm only submissive to God. Even this king who had great authority could not control the prophet or the word of the Lord. In fact, God had told him, he said, don't even go by the same way you came. Go a different way, which would have been very difficult. If you look at the maps of that area to get from Bethel, uh, to get from where he was in Judah to Bethel, there's a, there's a simple road. So to go back a different way means he has to go the long way. He has to go through the mountains there, and it's not going to be easy. This prophet said he would not be co-opted by any political power. And let me just briefly state for a moment, this is a danger among Christians and those who follow the Lord of becoming slaves to political power or politics. Now, there's nothing wrong with you voting. You should be voting. You should be asserting Christian values at the ballot box. I plan to do the same thing this year. However, you need to make sure you represent who you represent and who you stand for. Who do people know that you represent? You want to represent the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost. That is, he is your number one authority, and he is the one who you submit to. You should never submit the truth of God for the sake of a political party, ever. We hold politics accountable to God's truth, not the other way around. We must stand up and speak the truth even to those who we may align ourselves with, but who are walking away from certain truths. We must speak the truth to them and not say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I would rather follow that man or this person or this party. Recognize the truth that we must submit to God first because truth is truth. God's word doesn't change, and God is far greater and more powerful than any king or any king can, human king can hope to be. Isn't that an amazing truth? Isn't that a wonderful thing? We must submit to the king of kings and not get caught up and human power struggles. Secondly, I want you to notice that disobedience, it, it not only leads us to trusting power, powerless things, disobedience brings consequences even to those who are deceived. You might, you might have given yourself excuses in the past saying, look, I, I disobeyed God, but, but I was lied to. I was deceived. God says that that doesn't really matter. I mean, Eve was deceived in the garden. She still faced the consequences for her decision. You have a choice. Even when you're deceived, you have a choice who to believe, and you must choose to believe God. Let's look at this passage. You'll see exactly what I'm saying, because this next part of the story is very difficult and challenging. So far, the man of God has been the hero of our story, speaking truth to a political compromiser and a bad leader. He's speaking out against false worship, against a false altar. But guess what? God's power does not rest in this man. This is key. God's power is not located in this man. He is not immune from the consequences of disobedience either. He's just a man communicating the truth of God. Notice that in this next scene, we'll see God is a just God who is not a respecter of persons. Just because the man was from Judah, just because he was preaching truth against a false altar in Bethel, that's the northern kingdom, does not mean he'll get a pass if he disobeys. Like God doesn't say, well, he was my guy, so I let him get away with it. No, no, no. You disobey God, you will face the consequences of this. Notice this. First, I want you to notice that we must evaluate everything by God's revealed truth. How do we avoid ourselves being deceived? Evaluate everything by God's revealed truth. Don't be deceived by people who claim to speak for God but contradict Him. Evaluate, every, evaluate what I say by God's Word. Your job as people in this church is to evaluate what comes out of this pulpit by what does the Bible say. 
That's your job. That's our job, is to be attentive to the truth. We've got to reveal to God's, we've got to be uh, committed to God's revealed truth, because that takes ultimate priority over what people tell you. Look at verse 11. He says this, now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came to him. The word sons there, it's either his children or perhaps his students, because some people called sons of the prophets were often students in his, like his, like his seminary students, you might call them that, or his, he was teaching them. Uh, came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his son had seen the way the man of God went and came from Judah. And they said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he, the old man, said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said, Come home with me and eat bread. And he says, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been, notice, I have been told by the word of the Lord, You shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. Same words. He is saying, God told me clearly what to do. Then notice what happens in verse 18. He said to him, the old man said to the young man, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. The young man knew God's commands. He knew what God had said. He repeats it twice. The old prophet comes and contradicts what the young man knew to be true. And and notice that the young prophet listens to both. The old man says, hey, God told me by an angel, also by the word of the Lord, that you're not to listen to that word. You're supposed to come with me. And the the young man had had a decision to make at this point. Do I listen to someone else, what they've told me God said, or do I listen to what God actually said? Think of all the things that the young man would have been feeling. I mean, he's probably coming down off of an emotional high, having confronted the king in this way. He's probably tired. He's sitting under an oak tree. He might be hungry. It, It probably sounds really good to get a meal right about now. And as he's thinking, you know, this old prophet seems like a nice guy. I mean, he wouldn't lie to me. He's just trying to be nice. And, and what can he offer me? I mean, the king, when he offered to bring me food, I know what it was. When God said, don't eat and don't drink, God was really saying, don't get caught up into being a servant of the king Jeroboam. And so that's probably what's going on here, right, Lord? And so this prophet doesn't have anything to offer me like that. Like, he's not going to make me one of his servants. So it's probably fine if I just compromise a little here and do what I need to do. I, mean, I need to eat. God wants me to be happy, right? I mean, God wants me to be full. God would not, it would not be God's will that I'd be hungry and thirsty. Obviously, God wants me to do this. You can imagine all of those thoughts perhaps going through his mind. Whatever the case, he's deceived. He's deceived and he goes. Verse 19, he went back with him and ate bread in his house and, and drank water. But, but, there, but ex- deception is no excuse for disobedience. Deception is no excuse for disobedience. Just like Eve was deceived by Satan into disobeying the Lord, it's not that the Lord said, oh, Eve, you were deceived. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) My fault. No problem. We'll just do a redo, right? Try it again. This time, don't be deceived. No, deception is no excuse. Further, here we have the young prophet deceived 
into disobeying the word of the Lord. If you keep going, you'll notice this this other command we're given, this other implication we should pull out from this text is that we should beware of the consequences of disobeying God's revealed truth. It's helpful for us to think about what would happen if we disobey God. There are major consequences that follow disobedience to God. It is helpful for you to think about what would happen if you disobeyed God. And notice that those who disobey God facing these consequences in verse 20. Now it happened as they sat at the table, an amazing scene here, that, that the word of the Lord actually came to the prophet, the old man, who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you. But you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place which the Lord said, You eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Now, if I was that young man, I would have said, now, wait a minute. Who is it who invited me here? You recognize that it's your responsibility to obey God. And when you disobey God, you can't blame anybody else for that. That's your choice. And so that's what he did. He realized it was his choice. And, and it's an amazing irony here that God uses the man who entices him to disobey to actually give him a word saying, what you've done will lead to your death keep going in verse 23. So it was after he eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled his donkey for him, the prophet who had, he had brought back. And when he had gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey stood by it. And the lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown in the road and the lion standing by the corpse. And they went and told the city it told it in the city where the old prophets dwell. So it is here that the old young man facing the consequences of his decision goes, and exactly what happens by God's word takes place. In fact, I've mentioned, I've called this in my notes here, the wages of sin is death. I was thinking about this verse from Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. Death comes from sin, and sin brings death. In the Old Testament, later in, or in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 18, it says, Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. Our sin brings death. And God takes disobedience to His Word very seriously. And if you and I think these consequences seem harsh, that means we don't appreciate the severity of disobedience to God. Because God is not unjust in His actions. God is right and righteous. So when we see this, we say, wow, that's how seriously God takes direct disobedience to His Word. It's merciful, it's merciful of Him not to exact that on us. I want you to notice in verse 26, we'll keep reading, we'll see that God's Word is fulfilled no matter who speaks it. In verse 26, that when the prophet who had brought him back the way heard it, he said, it's the man of God who was disobedient to the Word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which he tore him and killed him, according to the Word of the Lord, which he spoke to him, and he spoke to his sons saying, saddle the donkey for me. They saddled it. He went out and found the corpse thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. And the lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the old man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. 
Verse 30, and he laid the corpse in his own tomb. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother, so it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against the shrines of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. Notice a few things here that in verse 26, he knew the consequences to the disobedience of the word of God. He knew what would happen if the man had disobeyed. So he got on his donkey and found the man of God out there. In verse 28, he finds the man in the street as a corpse. The work of God was obvious. Think about it. He gets there, and there's a lion and a donkey and a corpse. And the lion is not consuming the corpse, nor is he attacking the donkey. And the donkey is not running away from the lion who's standing right there. They're standing together as a sign. It is an obvious sign to everyone that something strange is happening here. And God makes it a point saying, this is what happens when you disobey, even if you are deceived. Look at verse 29. The prophet took the corpse, laid it on the donkey, brought it back. And so he mourned, and he recognized the Spirit-filled man here. And and I I have here that, that it's interesting to me that the prophet, God's word was fulfilled no matter who spoke it. So the man of God who had deceived was able to speak truth, and God fulfilled his word. God is not dependent on human beings like you or me. God will get his work done. The prophet died because of his disobedience to the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, God's word would be fulfilled. This young prophet disobeyed God, but does that mean that his prophecy would now fail? No. His prophecy about the altar would still stand. His prophecy about Jeroboam would still stand, even though he himself had been disobedient to God. The truth of God's word does not depend on the righteousness of the messenger who's speaking, but on the righteousness of the one who sends the messenger. You can have a very flawed, very, very uh, twisted person even speaking truth, and truth is still truth no matter who says it. God's word will be fulfilled no matter the vessel. Lastly, we'll see as we close out this passage that... There you go. The truth of God's word does not depend on the righteousness of the messenger speaking, but on the righteousness of the one who sends the messenger. Number three, disobedience is a compounding problem. Sin will not stop unless something changes. Look at verse 33. It says, after this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But again, he made priests from every class of people from the high places, whoever he wished. He consecrated them he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was a sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy from the face of the earth. Notice these things. Disobedience is a compounding problem. Nothing will change until the sinner repents. A sinner needs to repent for change to happen. Repentance is a biblical term that just means a radical change of thinking, a radical change of mind. Jeroboam had none of this. He had seen the consequences of sin. He saw the prophetic word of God. He saw what was going on. He knew he had had direct interactions with prophets who told him what was going to happen, and it happened. He said, you'll get ten kingdoms. He got the ten kingdoms. And yet here, Jeroboam does not stop sinning. Repentance here should have happened. He should have seen the consequences of this this prophecy and said, whoa, I better change course. He didn't do any of that. He didn't change his mind at all. 
Some people will face consequences for sin. They'll face warnings about sin. They'll even see the judgment of sin, yet they will, in their rebellion, continue to sin. That's just the fact of life. What is needed is a change of mind. We need people to recognize that they're thinking wrong and need to change their thinking. Despite all that's happened, he will keep on sinning, it says. He goes back down the path of unrighteousness. Notice that with disobedience, things only get worse, and further, your disobedience will impact many others besides yourself. You would think the prophet's confrontation would have changed his mind, but it doesn't at all. And isn't that the same thing that happens with many of us? God confronts our sin, we're caught and we stop for a while, but our sin doesn't stop because we have not changed our mind. Our mind unchanged means our behavior will continue. Secondly, the unrepentant will face judgment for his sin. Verse 34, this was the sin, verse 34. You know, that's the same word that's used when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and their sin. Their sin came up. This is resulting in the extermination or the destruction of the family of Jeroboam from the face of the earth, something that was promised would not happen to the son of David, but it happened here to the son of Jeremiah. You know, we who, are sin, we who sin are condemned because of our sin. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Notice this verse. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is what? Condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God gives us in this passage, a truth that changes everything. Your disobedience is not the end of the story. That God loves you so much, He sent His only, His one and only Son, that if you believe on Him, you can have life instead of death. You can have freedom instead of condemnation. You can have freedom from judgment. And this gift is given to the world. God so loved the world. Anyone, anyone in the world can come to Him and be saved. You who feel like your life is Far gone. If you say, I have done way too much bad stuff. You have no idea, Pastor, how bad my past is, how checkered my past is. God would never forgive me. Yes, He will. He will forgive you, and He will lovingly do it. He will openly embrace you, and, and because God loves the world so that He gave His only begotten Son, His one and only Son. And He doesn't require anything from you except faith in Him, because unless Unless we, are, uh, th- unless we receive this gift, our disobedience will continue to be a compounding problem because your sin will not fix itself. Your sin will not fix itself. It will only get worse. A few concluding thoughts. First, I want you to notice the repetition of the Word of God over and over again. This is all throughout this, this passage, verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 9, verse 27. Over and over again, we see the Word of the Lord. This is a theme that develops throughout the entire, the entire book of, of First and Second Kings. We see this throughout. In fact, that's the title of our series, God's Word to a Divided Kingdom. And this is what I, wanted, I want you to take away from this, that no matter how bad things get, God sends His servant with His Word to preach to disobedient children. No matter how bad things get, you see prophets of God coming and speaking truth to people, and some people respond the right way. No matter how things get in our culture today, no matter how bad things are, God is sending His truth 
And maybe you're the person whom God is sending with the truth to speak truth in a dark place. Secondly, I want you to notice that God's Word is authoritative and it's true. God's Word is authoritative and it's true. And because God's Word is authoritative and and it is true, God's instructions are enough. God's clear instructions are enough. God's Word does not contradict. When someone tells you God told them something and it contradicts God's God's clear instructions already given in His Word, you are taking a great risk in listening to the person who is opposing God's Word. I mean, you could do it, but you are taking a great risk because you are stepping out away from what God has revealed. Do not go where people say, I have, I have a word of God for you, and if it contradicts God's word, you better run away. Amen. When we speak the word of God, I often say, well, where is that in the Bible? We're talking about God's word. We're talking about his revealed word. And friends, we, we have a lot of people who are easily deceived and easily distracted because they want to pursue beyond what God has told us. You need to hold clear and God's cl- or hold fast to that which is clear. God's clear instructions are enough, and you will be held accountable for God's word to do. You are responsible to obey God. You are going to be held accountable for who you allow to speak into your life and whom you believe. This is really, really important today because there's a lot of people who are listening to a lot of voices and a lot of teachers who you have no idea who these people are. There's a lot of stuff online that, you know, I benefit from, but sometimes I'm listening to things. I'm like, you know, that person doesn't know any, what in the world are they talking about? And, and people share it and they're like, this is so profound. I mean, it's not profound. It's foolishness. This person doesn't know what they're talking about. And you give them a platform. You, you share what they're saying and, and you have to be careful, be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. And judge what people tell you by God's word. Turn into a Berean. One who, pers- who looks through the word of God and says, okay, you say that, where is that in the Bible? Let me find what you're saying. And when people quote verses, read it in context. Okay, what is actually being said here? Because people can make anything, say anything, if you pull it out of context. Be careful. It's not about what you heard most recently. It's not about what appeals to your physical needs or desires. It's not about what makes you more popular or accepted among a group. It's not even dependent on what's popular at the time. God's Word is authoritative, and it is true. Our culture is not authoritative. It is passing away. God's Word is true. It's really simple when it comes down to it. Listen and obey God. And thirdly, God saves us from the disaster of disobedience. Earlier in the message, I gave the first part of the verse, for the wages of sin is death. Do you know the second part of that verse? But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Can you get any more directly contrasted than that? Death, eternal life. Wages, gift. The wages of sin, death. It's what you deserve. But guess what? The gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, not through your good, righteous behavior, not through your church attendance, not through your giving of money, but through Jesus Christ. We come through the one, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Yes, the wages of sin is death. It's a terrible, terrible thing to think about the consequences of sin. We look at a passage like this, we say, wow, that's really severe. Yes, sin is severe. It took Christ dying on the cross to pay for your sin. The sinless Son of Man, the sinless Son of God. They're willingly on the cross dying because He loved you. And we can escape our own consequences of death through the sacrificial, which means not on his own behalf, through the substitutionary, that means in our place, the death of Christ on the cross for your sin. And not only his death, but he rose from the dead, defeating death 
and defeating hell. When we said earlier in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, die, but have everlasting life. The first act of obedience is faith. Would you believe in Jesus today? I don't know where you stand with God. I, I, I've talked to a lot of you. I know most of your testimonies of salvation. You talk about a moment where you knew you came to the end of your rope, the end of your line. You had nothing else to offer, nothing to give. And you realize you could not earn your way to heaven. And so you said, Lord Jesus, I trust you for my salvation. I receive your gift of salvation, not of myself, but of you. And I've talked to a lot of you who've gone through that, who've had that transformation, who've had that new birth. But maybe you haven't. And I beg of you, get right with God today. Get peace with God today, the one who paid for your sins. You see the seriousness, the disaster that comes from disobedience. Act in obedience, that first act of obedience of being faith and trusting God. Would you do that? Secondly, Christians, there are a lot of Christians who have listened to a lot of nonsense, a lot of noise, and embraced a lot of thinking that's contrary to God's Word. You do that to your own peril. We do that to our own peril. When you identify wrong thinking in your life, what should we do? We should go to God's Word and say, Lord, forgive me for that wrong thinking. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to believe your revealed truth. And that's the safest place to be, right in the middle of God's will for us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going to have a moment of prayer here. And in just a minute, as I let you think about these things, we're going to sing a song. Before we do so, I want to let you have some quiet time to deal with the Lord, whatever God is bringing to your heart. Deal with him now in your seat. It's my belief that whenever the word is preached, God's word is at work in the hearts of those who trust him. So would you deal with the Lord now? thank you for your grace that saves us from our sin and gives us hope when we have failed you. Lord, thank you for the rescuing power of the grace of God. Thank you, Lord, for your gift of salvation that is free. Uh, we, we could never earn it if we tried. And so, Father, we are so grateful for where you have delivered us for when, by sending Christ to die for our sakes. But also, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live a life of faith and obedience to you that recognizes where we are not trusting you. Let us, Lord, please forgive us, Lord, where we do not live in faith. And help us to learn to trust and learn to believe. And if there's someone here today, Lord, who is still struggling with that first act of obedience of faith, 
Pray today would be that day where they trust you and believe on you and receive that gift of salvation. Lord, you call us to be those who believe you, and so we, we choose today to believe you and trust your word. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close with a hymn, 494. It is a hymn of invitation to have thine own way, Lord. It's a hymn of prayer.